This is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. On this week's show, a fond farewell to 2018, recorded live on Chicago's South Side, the University of Chicago's Logan Center for the Arts, the site of our traditional year-end rap party, our celebration of our favorite moments of the movie year that was. With the help of some very special guests, we shared the scenes that had us laughing, crying, and dancing. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. This week on the show, our live 2018 rap party recorded last Friday night at the University of Chicago's Logan Center for the Arts. The rap party is our annual look back at the year in movies. We talk about the funniest and most moving scenes of the year, the best use of music, and our scenes of the year. Joining Josh and me, the other half of our Best of 2018 roundtable, Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune, and Tasha Robinson from TheVerge.com and The Next Picture Show. A note to radio listeners, the live show ran over two hours, so you'll only be hearing about half of what we recorded that night. To hear the whole thing, you can visit filmspotting.net. You can also find the show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, let's head to the south side of Chicago and the Logan Center for the Arts for the 2018 Rap Party. Hi, everybody. Hello. Welcome. You guys look great. What a crowd. Thanks so much for coming out. I'm really glad, Josh, that Tyler got some of that sound for Sam to work into the podcast and radio show later. The raucous applause for my picks, the meh applause for yours. It'll, yeah, well, we'll it'll work out we'll nicely. see what happens. But this crowd really is great. We've been really fortunate. We've had, a, I don't know how many, five or six live shows now. We've sold out other venues. Those venues are usually about half the size, less than half the size of this one. So this is incredible. We really, really appreciate the support. So thank, thank you, everybody. You so much. I'm sure a couple of you listened to our top 10 shows and probably while listening, agreed with some of those picks, but also thought, I mean, we covered a lot of films, but there were probably a few times where you thought, why haven't they brought up No, you got mad. Title? You actually got mad at us and wanted to throw your throw the phone away, right? So if that happened, we want to make up for it a little bit here and also give you a chance to participate in this show. I mean, this is a live recording, so we want you to feel like you're a part of it. So not all at once, but somebody get us started. Shout a title that did not come up on our top 10 show that you wish we had talked about. Who wants to get us started? Tully. Tully. Good one. Like Tully. We both yeah. like Tully quite a bit. Anybody else? come up tonight. Okay. A lot for blind spotting, which I know you've caught up with, Adam. I have caught up with it. Very good. We are going to get at least a mention of blind spotting in the show tonight. Eighth grade, definitely going to come up as well. Don't worry, he won't get far on foot. Like it. I don't think it's going to make any of our categories tonight. Has anyone mentioned happy time murders yet? <laughs> I'm going to take that as a no. <laughs> All right. Are we ready? Let's do it. We're going to jump into the first category. It is appropriately opening scenes. And we thought, what better way to start a Chicago set show than to start with a clip from a really good Chicago set movie. This is the opening scene from Widows. Great scene, great movie. I think 
that scene goes on for at least four minutes where we're introduced to all of the wives and we're introduced to all of the husbands who are the thieves you see there in the scene. Widow's top 10 for Michael Phillips. I think he was the only one who had it on his top 10 list, but a top 20 film for me. One of our listeners, Adam Graff, called that scene the juxtaposition between home life and the heist gone wrong. And that really is it. It was a favorite for both of us. Yeah, it's a remarkable opening, although now I'm second-guessing us starting with that, because you and I have to follow up Viola Davis and Liam Neeson. I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> no, we're in trouble. But I think, for me, real quick, the thing that really stands out on rewatch, the, the editing there and the sound that makes that juxtaposition happen. You notice that first cut, the gunshot in the heist, that's cut right on Liam Neeson, that growl and that kind of lunge forward. And later in that scene, we didn't see it there, but the squeal of kids running through a shop happens right on the cut with the squeal of van tires from that heist gone wrong. So great stuff there from that Steve McQueen film, Widows. And we are now going to get officially into our runners up for our favorite opening scene of the year. Josh? Yeah, my first mention here comes from Roma, the opening scene from Roma. I think in our review of Roma, I claimed that this opening scene was the best film of 2018, if I'm recalling correctly. So I should probably include it in this category for sure. Um, Those of you who have seen it already know the rhythm that this sets. Uh, The mood it sets. I've talked about this idea of body rhythm movies um, in context of filmmakers like Nuri Bilga Shailan and others, where you have to adjust your normal process for how you're going to sit and watch a film. Things are going to move at a different pace, and this absolutely does that. And I think it's also uh, thematically of a piece with what this movie is interested in doing. It's it's letting us see domestic chores as miraculous acts, uh, and that's exactly what's happening here in this opening scene. Yeah, miraculous is the right word for it, that combination. Again, a juxtaposition, the miraculous with the mundane, from that one still shot, I think it sets up the entire film, everything Quaron's exploring in terms of that kind of merger of those two worlds, this world of washing floors, and then it's a portal, that, that window that we see to this world that exists beyond the everyday, or at least the everyday of these characters. And Josh, you're dead on with that rhythm and even the sound there of the water. Of course, water plays a key role, not only in this film, the end of this film, but also a lot of Koran films. But it does almost put you, I, I hate to use this word and steal one of your one of the words that might come up in a pick here in a second, but it is almost, it puts you in this almost transcendental state. Yeah, for sure. And with that, we're going to go to one of my honorable mentions for this category, and it is First Man. Any First Man fans out there? All right. There we go. Damien Chazelle, written by Josh Singer. It didn't make any of our top tens. This was one we got emails about from people saying, how could you leave this off? It's top 15 for me, and definitely one. We're just looking at the still frame here from this one. The image does not do it justice at all in terms of the intensity of this opening scene and the spectacle of it. I think it's about a five-minute scene that all takes place within the cockpit of an X-15 where we see Neil Armstrong, and he's going as high into the Earth's stratosphere as he can go, and we are just there, stuck with him, trapped in that cockpit that is shaking and jolting along. And it's a scene that does have this kind of moment where we get this, this beautiful moment of peace up in the sky where he looks and he sees the entire curve of the earth and then from there crisis happens engine failure and he risks actually bouncing off the atmosphere it's an exciting sequence obviously to open a movie but i felt like it was so crucial in establishing his character as well him 
as a character, his professionalism, his ability to perform under the highest duress, to cheat death. We're going to see that again and again over the course of the movie. And they actually shot it in 16 millimeter to make it look kind of like NASA test flight footage. But again, the key with the first man seems really that perspective that you're seeing there where we are, we are right with him in that cockpit and we never get to leave until he does. So we go from that to a, a very different film, a lot, a lot fewer edits in your next pick, Josh. Yeah. The beginning to first reformed my number three film of the year, I believe um, is a little more. Yeah. Come on. We can get some cheers. First reformed fans. All right. Believe it or not, uh, what you're seeing here is one of the most dramatic camera movements in this film. It is. It's one of only two that moves, isn't it? Yeah, there might, there might be maybe three if you don't count those transcendental forays that the movie takes at times. But this lets us know. It sort of sets that tone. I think you could argue this is another body rhythm movie in a little in a certain way. Um, but it lets us know that um, something momentous can happen. So the next section of this film is going to be very static camera work, direct images, people looking directly into the camera. But because we remember that it had this movement that it lured us in with, we know there is the possibility for that, as Paul Schrader, the writer-director, would describe transcendental cinema to burst through at any moment. And, and when it does later in the film with, in some cases, very dramatic camera movements or even subtle ones, you sort of sit up and you notice and you make that connection to this beginning. So I love how First Reformed opens. A little more intricate opening scene for my next honorable mention. How many people saw The Death of Stalin? out there now on demand if you haven't had a chance to see it yet. But this opening scene, which I think the whole thing takes about 12 to 15 minutes, if you think of it in terms of the book ending, starting with Patty Considine running this, this radio performance, this broadcast, and there's this lovely orchestral performance going on, and he's having a perfectly lovely evening making it all happen until Joseph Stalin calls him on the phone. You can see the reaction there. And he first asks to be called back in 17 minutes. And then he later demands that a recording gets delivered to him right away. And the, the thing that I love about this one is that you do meet all the key players over the course of this sequence, but it really cleverly and really hilariously kind of throws you into the absurd chaos of life under Stalin. The questions that come up, I think in that moment, as soon as he hangs up the phone, he's, he's wondering, is it, is it 17 minutes? I'm supposed to call him back in 17 minutes. Is it from the moment he called? Is it from the moment I hang up the phone? If, if I call too late, did, did anyone start a timer? Is anyone paying attention? And then Because this is a life and death matter. It, literally, literally life is. and death. What if he calls too early or too late? Will he be killed? And then he does ultimately resolve to, he has to recreate the recording because... He didn't get a recording of it, but Stalin demands it. Stalin's going to get it. And he has to find a conductor on a late night search that intersects with one of Stalin's purges. A lot of people are, are being pulled out of these apartments and they go and pull out a conductor to do it. And then you have Constantine pulling people in off the street because the, the absurdity of it is such that they feel like they have to actually match the sound quality or Stalin will notice. So they can't have an empty performance hall. I love the opening of The Death of Stalin. Just brilliant satire. It's a really tricky movie. Those of you who have seen it know this balance between broad comedy and, and horror. And I think this opening sets us up, lets us know that it's okay to laugh. It's 
perhaps, maybe we'll see a funnier moment later, but it's perhaps one of the most slapsticky sequences in the film. And so we're kind of allowed to laugh here, which is crucial for when the movie decides to want us to have those laughs stick in our throat. Okay, that brings us to our ultimate choices for our favorite opening scene of the year. And to get us started, we thought we had to hear from hopefully some people who are near and dear to a few of you, certainly near and dear to us, former film spotting SVU hosts, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. Hi, this is Matt Singer. And Allison Wilmore. And uh, we are formerly of the film spotting SVU podcast. Yeah, gone but not forgotten. Yes. As you can see, we are still friends. Yeah, we still see movies like um, Bumblebee, the mm-hmm. movie we just enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was gracious enough to lift the restraining order I have against Allison <laughs> so we can record <laughs> this video about our favorite opening scenes of the year. Allison, would you like to go first? Sure, I'll go first. Okay, what's your favorite opening scene yeah, of so the year? The one that came to mind immediately when I when we were given this topic was the one in Cam. Oh yes. Yes, which is a horror movie about a cam girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it goes on to having this whole story about like doppelgangers and all of that. But the opening scene is just her cam kind of like brand. Yes. And it sets out in like, I think like maybe five minutes it goes from being like introducing you to the world of like how cams work to her incredibly disturbing act. And I think it's like really well done and a great surprise and sets you up for this really unexpected movie that follows. So I thought that was a great opening scene. That's, a, that's an excellent pick. Why, thank you. My pick is in a way, it's a little bit similar sort of in the effect it has on you, but mm. very different movie. That would be from Mission Impossible Fallout. Excellent choice. And uh, I, I mean, just the very, very first scene is great, where you see, all of a sudden, Michelle uh, Monaghan is back. She's been gone, and now she's back. And they're getting married again, it seems like. But then Solomon Lane is there, and he's evil. And then you realize it's a dream, and there's a horrible explosion. And then that goes right into the first mission. And, uh, you know, we're used to, especially in the beginning of these movies, having some sort of sort of James Bond, cold Ridiculous, open, excitement, also, fun. Top, yeah. Yes, and in this case, it seems for a minute, spoiler, that they've actually failed. Yep. And they have this whole rigmarole where like they're sitting in a hospital room and there's Wolf Blitzers on the television. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm gonna spoil it, I'm sorry. Oh, and, uh, and it seems like Tom Cruise didn't, didn't do it for uh, once. Yeah, but then. It actually was a Mission Impossible, but then, then there's a reversal. Just, I won't give away all the details, but just that whole thing was just so great because, you you know, the, the marketing for that movie was a little more somber, and sure, the title, sure. you're like, wow, this is going to be... Dark an... things are coming. Yes, and then they're like, no, it's still a Mission Impossible! <laughs> <laughs> and it was so much fun, and I've seen that movie like three, four times now, and I still, get a, <laughs> I still get a big chuckle when Wolf Blitzer walks in that room. It's a really good cameo. It's a great cameo. It's yeah. a great cameo. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's my pick. Yeah. I and think two very good picks. And, two very good picks. Yeah. This was fun. This was fun. The restraining order goes back into effect in 12 hours. It's a real pain for me to sit that far back in a movie theater, Matt. I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, thanks, guys. Thank you. Have a great 2019. Yeah. Bye. So great to hear from Matt and Allison. And just as you would expect from them, Allison gives me a pick that I had never even heard of at the time she submitted this. I wasn't familiar at all with Kim. I will say that she talked about the surprise there and you saw the footage. All that footage is in the trailer. So 
if you are really eager to see Cam now, we didn't ruin it for you. At least I don't think we did. Now, Mission Impossible Fallout, great opening, really, really good film. Watching it again, I realized that Thanos also responsible for the deaths in that dream sequence. Did you see how everyone disintegrated? We might hear from Thanos again later in the night. But then we move, Josh, to your pick, your best opening scene. What is it? This is the pick. We're now getting to our official picks, for those of you keeping track at home. Hereditary fans out there. All right. Let's all watch. people. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, let's watch what I like to call uh, the Welcome to the Dollhouse opening of Hereditary. Well, I'm realizing now, you probably think I only like very slow movies after my last couple. Really, I thought Spider-Verse was great. Trust me. Every pick, slow tracking shots. <laughs> Rest of the night. As you know, if you saw this, though, um, the mother of this family creates miniatures. She's an artist, and that's what she does. And it's just this perfect metaphor for this family that comes to realize um, they're in their own sort of dollhouse, uh, subject to forces outside of their control. So I love how writer-director Ari Aster embraces that from the opening scene. And think about the use. Yes, it's a slow camera mu movement, but what that does is it employs the off-screen space. So you're constantly wondering, well, what am I going to see next? And the music, of course, is a big part of that. Um, the sound is crucial, mm -hmm. not just the music, but what is going on with that hollow rumbling or mumbling that we hear in one section. It, I love how it just drops in and then goes away, so mm -hmm. it isn't persistent, and it leaves us um, just feeling really unsettled. And then it ends with that editing magic trick that uh, I don't even want to know how they did it, where we go from the model to live action. But uh, my favorite opening scene of the year. Yeah, it's a technical marvel. The score is so wonderfully employed there. And you're absolutely right about that notion of control. It sets up this idea right from the beginning, this, this terror of being figures in a world that someone else has created and they're dictating the terms of. And I, I obviously, as you, as you see the film, that does play out for so many of these characters. So we're going to try to lighten the mood maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit as we get to my choice for favorite opening scene. Those characters were heading to a funeral. These characters, or at least the main character we're gonna see, is at a funeral. It's a golden brick shortlist film. And when we talked about it briefly on the show, I mentioned the tonal tightrope of this movie, and, and the opening scene in particular, the, the mixture of comedy and tragedy, moment to moment, that the writer-director and the star here, you're gonna see Jim Cummings, manages to pull off. He he does maintain it throughout, and, and it's basically, it is worth pointing out, I have not seen it, Josh. Did you actually watch it? Because you just caught up with Watched this film. Watched it this week, yeah. But there's, a, there's an award-winning short film in 2016 that Jim Cummings made, and this opening scene is essentially that film uh, remade. And he plays a character named Jim Arnault. He's a cop in his 30s. He's delivering a somewhat prepared eulogy for his mother. And this is another one, slow, long take. It's 13 minutes long. The whole scene plays out in one take over 13 minutes. We're and not showing it all. We're not. 
as much as I want to. But it's hard then in that 13 minutes to pick out the right portion that really captures that tonal tightrope I mentioned. But this is my favorite part. And I know he's at a funeral and I know it's going to start off sad. And, and if it's emotional, it should be. But I'm giving everyone here permission to laugh. You can laugh at Thunder Road. We gave each other hell. And it gets to when you grow up. And I'm one of the good guys now. <laughs> I was just mean to her. Lie to her. I didn't mean to be. John Wayne. I tell my daughter sometimes, hey, never say anything mean to me. <laughs> Not for my sake, obviously, you know, I can take, I'm a grown man. <laughs> but you just hate for her to have to look back and... I was just stupid. I was just so stupid. I have, um... I'm a dyslexic. <laughs> I never even think about it, really. When I was in high school, I had to listen to all these books on tape. It looks like the words are all jumbled up when you're reading. I can do it. I'm just not that fast. But when I went to school at LSU, go Tigers. <laughs> we found out that they weren't going to have anything like that for my textbooks. And so my mom bought a little tape recorder. So she'd read all the things I had to read so I could do well in school. That's all she wanted. Screwed that up. And I'd say, hey, thanks, Mom, for doing that. That means a lot. Send it to me in the mail. But she must have been up so late. And it gets to you when you grow up. It eats you alive. I'm so sorry. I'm s I hadn't planned. I wasn't. Um. Go ahead. You're fine. Anywho. <laughs> <laughs> so, all the other. Yeah. Come on. Round of applause for Jim Cummings and Thunder Road. I, I just really wanted to watch that with this crowd. That, that, that's my pick. I mean, there are other choices that we've talked about. There may be better technical achievements, but I really just wanted to enjoy that with an audience. Some of my favorite parts. I love the little, the little throwaway John Wayne line, like maybe he had it planned earlier and then it just popped into his head. Or it's when he says that uh, I'm one of the good guys now. And so then John Wayne pops into his head as maybe the ultimate good guy. And he's so discombobulated that he has to actually say John Wayne. Of course, the I'm a grown man line is is my favorite the go tigers and then it all culminates though with this open mouth soundless wail that he does i mean again you really have to see at least all 13 minutes of this and i recommend the film just to just to see that that hybrid of of humor and pure sadness the grief is is undeniably real in that scene yeah that that's what i was going to say it is important as funny as that scene is to recognize that the movie explores the grief that we see in that scene as well and gives it its due. Tightrope is the right word that to use for this because I saw this maybe three days ago now, four. I still don't know what to make of this character and what to make of this guy, and not in a bad way either. I'm just thinking about him and where is he really at? Um, why is he always getting in his own way? 
Um, and uh, it's, it's a remarkable lead performance. We go from opening scenes to our next category. It is our favorite music moment of the year. Tyler already stole our thunder with Bohemian Rhapsody. No, it's not going to make... It's not going to make any of our lists here tonight. We're not going to make you uh, do We Will Rock You anymore, I promise. But we are going to hopefully get a thunderous applause for our esteemed colleague, one of our frequent contributors to film spotting, and really one of the, the real experts out there when it comes to talking about music and film. At least I think so. Can we call him an expert? Yeah, let's call him okay, an expert. We'll call him an expert. He is from the Chicago Tribune, Michael Phillips. So, Michael, how are you? Good, good. Sam, I thought we agreed to, I was going to get the Gone with the Wind theme behind me there. What the hell? <laughs> Something epic, you know? We no. failed. It probably won't be our only failure I tonight. Like this, I like this distance. We're, I, we're, yeah, I thanks. feel safer this like is, this. This is, the, this is the lay, in layoff rounds where I work, this is basically the distance uh, with, <laughs> with that last meeting, you know? Um, it's too bad because I got my uh, in order in order to get ready for the show. I I, I uh, took my car to a car wash today. True, and uh, I, uh, I I got every three years I get the whole thing really fully shampooed, the upholstery, the whole thing. We have dogs, kids. You know, we're eating. We're not riding in it constantly. It's What's okay. That? Yeah. Well, every three years, and, and so. But but that uh, has anyone ever had one of those upholstery shampoos? The, the smell, the chemical smell of that, is uh, well. It explains why I now have that chemical smell. So, if um, and it explains the distance. Yeah. <laughs> so if um, it's, I'm gonna. I did it for film spotting, so I'm gonna call it Oda Kempinar. That's what I'm gonna call it. <laughs> oh, big it. seller. I guess I'll take it. Okay. So music, music. Yeah, music. Right. And if it's 2018. This movie did not get any love on our... I don't even know if it got mentioned during our top 10 roundtable, like 27 hours of broadcasting. I don't think we talked about this movie, but it's certainly on a lot of people's minds. We are going to get things started with some, some praise for a little movie called A Star is Born. All right, so shallow. Now, no, I, I want. I don't love that film, but if that doesn't, if that moment, that scene doesn't give you chills, then I don't know what's wrong. Well, with I was going to say we want to be an inclusive show. So if there are those of you who really can't stand that song anymore, we are meeting. There's there's a group meeting afterwards. How many people are ready uh, to join that group? An anti-shallow support group. I yeah. will be leading. Let's hear the applause. How many people still kind of dig this tune? Don't worry. I'll, still, I'll people, still be out there for I mean, the that others. that was loud, Josh. I don't know. I think you're going to lose this one. How many people just can't hear that again? Oh, we're going we're gonna to need a bigger room. What's weird, they've actually done studies, and the only tune that can knock it out of your head is My Heart Will Go On, which is tragic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Shallow, one of our favorite moments, but Michael, not your choice for a runner-up from the best music moments of the year, and you have another option from a As a runner-up, as a runner-up, yeah. The, there's a moment, um, I don't want to, uh, we'll, we'll watch a little bit of it in a sec, but there's a moment early in the picture, 
And I really do think the first 45 minutes of this film is, is especially effective, you know. Uh, it's not a film I necessarily ever want to see again, but it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I gotta hand it to Bradley Cooper for pulling off, you know, most of it, and... Um, <laughs> Uh, the, there is something infernally durable about this. Every single version of this movie has, has connected with an audience for whatever reason. But there's a moment early on where we've just you know, met uh, the Lady Gaga character. And uh, it's one of the few truly kind of quiet, you know, isolated moments in this picture. So why don't we just uh, give it a listen and then we'll talk about it. When all the world is a hopeless jumble And the raindrops tumble all around Heaven opens a magic lane When all the clouds darken up the So she's going up this incline all alone early on, and, and we're hearing um, the intro to a song that it may take a second for those who don't know backwards and forwards, somewhere over the rainbow. But that's what that is. And it's, it's a moment that sort of ends with her at the top of the ramp, just sort of singing, just easing into the, the main part of the song. And then, very quiet moment, and then slowly, you know, the letters of the title appear in these enormous letters, a star is born. And it's a very interesting mixed note in a movie that does not necessarily uh, uh, give a damn about hitting two notes at once, any kind of contrasting anything after that. But I find that moment actually very effective, kind of like, wow, because it's also paying tribute to the 1954 star is born, starring Garland. And I, I thought that was really, that was a great way to kind of tell you that, okay, this is, this is a new version of this thing, but we all know it's a lot like the old ones. So. Well, I, I think it is a really creative nod, and he gives some kind of nod to all of the previous versions over the course of the movie, and rather than being kind of hacky about it or them feeling obligatory, I, I do feel like they're, for the most part, really inspired. And, and I kind of I like that touch, again, without it feeling like he felt some kind of obligation to do right. it. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's bold, too. I mean, this is a brazen project, and there's a lot of hubris in taking this on. And so I like that Cooper for the most part, pulls it off and, and is, is willing to be upfront about that. And that moment you're talking about, Michael, definitely does that. Um, you know, shallow jokes aside, I, I'm mostly a fan of this film as well. And I have a, a runner-up pick. Uh, it's the La Vie and Rose moment where they meet in the drag club. And this is probably my favorite scene in the film just because it has such a, an aura of flirtatious mystery to it. You're not quite sure... I love that we don't really know when she turns to look at Bradley Cooper's rocker if she recognizes him as famous. There's sort of a pause, a little hitch there, and maybe she does. Um, but this is just, you know, if this movie was going to work at all, these two had to connect. And I think this is this entire scene, but really this exact moment is where they click. So... I'm not going to go with a runner-up choice from A Star is Born, but A Star was born for me watching one of my favorite films of the year, probably outside my top 20, but I hope some people saw Hearts Beat Loud. Anybody watch it? So the star there for me is Kiersey Clemens and being introduced to her, maybe not quite at the Gaga level yet, but in terms of a, an actress and a musician. Michael, did you see Hearts Beat Loud? I can't no, remember. No, I haven't. No, okay. this is so, and Josh I got to get, so get to it. It's crazy. I am, I'm all hung out to dry up here, but Nick Offerman there is the dad in the scene. She's heading off to college soon. He forces her into a little bit of kind of 
father and, and daughter bonding. They, they've gotten a little bit removed from each other. She doesn't really want to do it, but reluctantly they start playing some music together. She's a singer and she kind of dabbles and writes songs on the side. He used to be in a band maybe 20 years ago. And just from a couple lines of lyrics and a nice melody, they end up recording this really wonderful song that is the title song, Hearts Beat Loud. I don't put this movie on the level of John Carney's Sing Street, which got some love here uh, in 2016 as I think my scene of the year. Yeah, Sing Street, my number two film of that year. But I did have a similar experience watching Hearts Beat Loud insofar as I loved hearing the music, really good original music, and I smiled my entire way through this movie. So definitely recommend Hearts Beat Loud if you haven't had a chance to see it yet. We then go to some options here as we think about some more honorable mentions that all involve music combining with movement in interesting ways. And I'm going to do another pick from a film we did get a chance to discuss in some detail on the show. And it's The Dance at Sundown from the movie Burning. How many people got a chance to see Burning? That's awesome. Okay. I mean, a little bit tougher to see an art house film like this one from Lee Chong Dong. It's another film that didn't get any attention, I don't think, in our top tens. No, it, it was just, it, it's a testament to how good the year was that that wouldn't, yeah. you know, wouldn't, didn't quite crack my... Yeah, in my, my 11 through 20, yeah, for sure. Yeah, me as well. And it's a love triangle. Uh, and this particular scene that we're taking a look at is set in a very rural part of South Korea, actually right near the border uh, with North Korea. And they, these three characters together, two men and the woman, they get high and the character we're seeing here in the scene, Shin Haimi, she, she takes off her top and she dances. She's inspired by a dance that she references earlier. She talks about a trip that she may or may not have taken to Africa. And uh, this notion of the, the people who are little hungry versus the people who are great hungry and the little hungry symbolizing people who are, are actually hungry and need food versus the people who are starving for something grander, something more existential and trying to figure out the answers to really everything. And she's dancing there in the scene at sundown to Generique by Miles Davis. And it's really just gorgeously captured. Her movement in this whole sequence feels like this poignant expression of, of, of that hunger and of longing and, and also freedom too. And then this is the only problem of not actually being able to, to see it and hear it and only looking at a clip, the music stops. And that's the choice that, that's the music moment that I really wanted to give some attention to here because the director removes it from the scene and it becomes this meta moment where of course it felt like to us, everyone in the audience, it felt like all those things I described, that poignant expression of, of so many things. But then as soon as you take the song away, she seems so lost and so lonely and so stuck. And we do actually get to see that realization dawn on her face. The actress, Jun jong Seo, so good in this film. And, and she ends up just kind of exiting the frame slowly to to no fanfare whatsoever in that moment and it's just a heartbreaking scene that's what makes it a real transitional moment too because it's a marking point in the film where things this is a very slippery movie and things we think maybe this is moving towards a moment of epiphany and clarity but instead from this point on things only get more mysterious and, and that drop of the music kind of cues that off so michael this is a short one but we are going to watch this one because really you have to appreciate this moment with uh, the flourish of the music combining with that that physical comedy here and it's another pick from the death of stalin Yes. Well, uh, why don't we watch it? Yeah, if you want to watch it first. And then we'll yak. Yeah, yeah let's do it. 
resume. <laughs> That's what I wanted, Sam. God damn it. Uh, I love, I, I mean, my, my, two, my two, this pick and my, my number one music moment of the year, are, they're from original scores, and I just, I have, it's my, one of my favorite things about the movies, period, because nothing throws me out of a movie faster if the music's getting in the way or working too hard. Uh, and nothing pulls you in more kind of surreptitiously, really, than, than music uh, that does work and absolutely makes sense, and whether it's in comedy or drama. And I think um, the score here, and you're getting all this sort of mock, you know, Prokofiev, and it's basically kind of like all this terrible sort of mid-century. Now, I, Prokofiev is wonderful, but I mean, there's all this sort of like slightly off mid-20th century totalitarian, uh, you know, no, no, no real joy on the soundtrack, right? But it's, this, this composer is really splendid, and I've totally blanked on his name. What the hell is the guy's name? <laughs> well, I, I, have, I have the computer. Okay, good. Uh, I'm going to rip. Uh, I, I would take a look at it. It's not, it's not the kind of comedy that... This is a little misleading, because this makes it look like it's like a, a Russian version of WWE or something, you know, but... but um, it's it's all it's it's from Armando Iannucci, uh, who's you know the, the creative mind behind Veep and behind the, the thick of it. No one's doing better uh, deadpan uh, political satire in any medium than this than this guy. And I think this is a case where uh, I've said this before, but Joel Cohen has said to me and to other people, you know, directing is two words, tone management. And everybody has to be in the same movie. And that's what you get here. And the, and the composer, who is? Christopher Willis. Yes. Does that sound correct? Also Mar did Veep. Mar yeah. Music for Veep. It, it's just, this, is, this is the sound. It sounds like, you know, lousy archival music from 1953 Russia. <laughs> you know, or just slightly overbearing, you know, kind of like, but it's, it's wonderful. It's just a little bit satiric. Fantastic. I, I think it's great. Yeah, it's the entrance of the year, I think, in film. <laughs> and do you love how Michael just kind of casually slipped in that he met Joel Cohn, that they had a conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Got to pick that name up off the floor, Michael Josh. Yeah. So that's, that's, I got a BA from a Midwestern State School, so don't mess with me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Fans of Greek filmmaker Yorgos Lanthimos here? Yes. Okay, so... The lobster, dog tooth, then you know that if you go to a Lanthimos film, you can't wait for the really bizarre dance sequence to arrive. <laughs> well, I'm watching The Favorite, and for quite a while I'm getting worried that we might not have that, <laughs> and then we get this. <laughs> so if... You're watching that and you haven't realized, go ahead, yeah. If you haven't realized, and I think this is going to happen to a lot of people as the award nominations continue to pile in for the favorite and it looks like a costume drama and it quacks a little bit like a costume drama, you might not know you're in a comedy. This is where you'll realize, oh, I'm in a comedy. This is supposed to be funny. Um, I love the anachronistic touches that Lanthimos pops in there and this is, this is one of my favorite moments. My mother told me she saw it uh, when we visited her over New Year's, and um, that's all she said. <laughs> yep. So that was, a, yeah, we had to get over that. We had to get through that part. Yeah. <laughs> so we have um, sort of a thematic uh, way of talking about our winners, our actual picks. 
and all three of them fell into this category of lovers embracing. Uh, mine comes from a film that opened very early on in 2018, A Quiet Place, with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. Uh, Post-apocalyptic film. The setup here is basically that they're hiding from monsters who, if they hear you, they will come and find you and kill you. So this family has to live in absolute silence, which means that... Um, the only way for them to connect intimately is, for example, in this sequence, sharing some earbuds and listening to, I think it's a Neil Young song, yeah. does that sound right? Mm -hmm. uh, together. So really a lovely moment in the midst of a pretty creepy horror film. We go to Michael's pick, which comes from my number one film of the year, If Beale Street Could Talk. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, uh, this is Christopher uh, Bertel's uh, score, my favorite original score, I think, from 2018. And um, simply, this is uh, the music that's used underneath the... Um, the love scene between uh, Tish and Fani, um, which is uh, this a wonderful interview in The Atlantic with the composer who he says uh, in that, he said, you know, we were, we were using a lot of brass and all kinds of instruments, a flugelhorn, a lot of horns, and, um, and they realized something was not quite right with the score. And he said, well, where are the, where are the strings? I mean, we, we can use strings to kind of express every kind of mood and emotion here. So th then they blended everything together, and they really came up with a, a kind of a magical sound. And he said that the, the idea was we wanted an analog to pure joy. And this is truly, it's the title, um, the title of this cut is called Eros. And it's, it's, just, it's one of the best love scenes I've seen, period, in a long time. And it's also some of the best love, love theme music I've heard. So, let's take a look. Simple theme, really, really artful, sort of deft use of repeated phrases, but just enough variation to kind of pull you in. And the scene goes on for a couple more, at least three more minutes. And it's, uh, the whole score is really something. And I think, like a lot, like almost every aspect of If Beale Street Could Talk, I think this is going to look and sound uh, really good in about 10 years. It's, it's the end of the year, every year, folks, don't you think? Just gets crowded with quality. <laughs> and it's hard to give the right attention to the films that deserve it. And um, so, anyway, that's mine. Yeah, the composer, uh, Nicholas Bertel, I don't know if you mentioned, Michael, also did Moonlight, and, uh, this, and strings that are used similarly there, where these, these moments that almost everyone has experienced, they're somewhat everyday moments, just um, become transcendent with that music behind it. Best score of the year, I think, and that brings us to my choice for the best music moment, and Michael always always embarrasses us. You know, he picks these wonderful little moments that are from original compositions and from scores and I go with the popular right, well, song. Well, I care about the form, Adam. I know. I mean, you know. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> I embarrass myself by going with a popular song, but you know what? I feel good about this choice. I think the crowd's going to be behind me on this choice. This is a film definitely didn't get enough love on our top ten roundtable. It's from Annihilation. Oh. 
Alex Garland's film. Now, we're going to see a moment here that is not quite the loving embrace as the other two that we've seen. You might know where I'm going with this one. I'm going to read a little bit from a listener who is in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. His name is Isaac Rosso Klakovich, longtime listener of the show. This is his favorite scene of the year, and he said also his most moving. It's the return of Lena's husband in the opening moments of Annihilation. At first, the scene seems too on the nose, with Crosby, Stills, and Nash helplessly hoping, playing behind a montage of photos and memories as Lena grieves for the loss of her husband. But then we return to the staircase where the scene began. However, this time, the music is distant, and we realize that Lena was listening to the song on a speaker this whole time. Even before her husband steps into the frame, the genius and emotional devastation of the scene arrives in how accurately it portrays grief. And Isaac says, as someone who just lost a close family member for the first time, I found myself unable to express my grief and turning to music as a medium through which to cope. So let's watch the scene, helplessly hoping Crosby steals a Nash from Annihilation. Stand by the stairway You'll see something Certain to tell you Confusion has its cause Good stuff. Isaac concludes, for a moment, it seems like her prayers have been answered, but imminently it is clear there's something missing and this won't bring her old life back. Almost as if she knew she was helplessly hoping and nothing will change the finality of his death. Agree with everything that Isaac articulated. I also do love the song, but I also really love how that whole sequence fits so perfectly with this mind-bending movie that Annihilation is. Just as we see later, every character that enters the shimmer has no real sense of how much time is covered between uh, the moment they entered from the time that they leave, if they do leave. And just as we watch in that scene, we really have no sense of how much time is covered between the start of those scenes of grief and their past together and the montage scenes of their shared past and then his, his return. And that flip, that flip from the non-diegetic music to the diegetic there, that's, that's really the moment, right, where we notice that, that that song is playing from the actual house. That moment for me felt like the, the entire film kind of in a nutshell in terms of the way time ellipses. Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm eager for a revisit on that film. And I think music really is, whether it's that kind of, whether it's uh, diegetic or non-diegetic, uh, it's, it's, if it's... Yeah. If it's music, we, non-diegetic ends up diegetic. If it's yeah, and if it's music, we know we come, we bring an entire personal history to it. If if we know the music, and if it's music we haven't heard, we have a kind of a different relationship to it, no matter what it's being used for. I'm I'm more of a I, I don't I don't cry in the usual places at movies. I'm, I'm starting to realize the older I get, I don't I tend to. I, I tend to kind of resist the, the, the go for the throat moments in any kind of picture. Um, but if, if the music knows what it's up to, it can go for my throat any time. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I'm probably the only guy who's cried all the way through the Michael Giacchino Ratatouille score, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not kidding. I mean, I really, that, I mean, there's certain cuts in that thing that, I, that are just like, this is why music, you know, wedded to moving pictures is... Is, uh, is able to take you somewhere, you know, close to the realm of opera, you know, where it just combines all these great art forms. And it, it's, it's really, it really is, it really is, that's a really astute use of, of existing music, I mm-hmm. think. That, yeah, really good. That's so, an unusually good pick, Adam. Thank you. <laughs> I got one right. One right so far. But I will point out, it did occur to me in making that choice that that is the second time in a row, our last rap party here at the Logan Center, 2016, my favorite music moment of the year was from an Alex Garland film with Oscar Isaac dancing that that famous scene. So I'm just going to call this from here on out the Oscar Isaac honorary music moment. 
And, and maybe he, he'll make enough films that I can just keep picking Oscar <laughs> Isaac scenes. Okay, we got to get the show moving. And to help us do that, we're going to go to our favorite funny moments of the year. And Tasha Robinson from The Verge and The Next Picture Show is going to join us on stage. Where are you, Tasha? There she is. So Michael gets to stay. It's like The Tonight Show. He gets to stay. He didn't slide down, but he gets to stay. He can just toss insults at us. We're not going to let him pick, but he, he, can, he can comment. Well, I'm the Joey Bishop. That's it. Yeah. And I, I'm glad I'm on this side, because everything he's been lobbing in that direction yeah. has been terrifying. Yeah, you're safe. I'm going to hide behind my screen. Oh, no, no. So let's talk about our, our favorite uh, moments of comedy from the year in cinema. And we're going to start with a sequence or a series of picks here that all involve comedy coming from or going to some pretty dark places. None of these choices as dark as the one you went with, Tasha. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How many people here saw Hannah Gadsby's Nanette? People who, who saw that film are aware it's, it goes to some really dark personal places, it's really intense, but somewhere in the middle of it all, she, she throws out this just really perfect definition of how comedy works. It's a buildup of tension and then a sudden surprise release. And when you, when you challenged me to come up with funny moments of the air, I was like, what can we do that's going to work completely out of context without any of that buildup and release? Just, here's the release, I, I hope you were already tense for some strange reason. <laughs> So one of the first things that came to mind is uh, Brian Taylor's movie Mom and Dad, which features Nick Cage and Selma Blair as parents in the middle of this strange apocalypse where suddenly parents feel this insane need to kill their children. It's a horror comedy. It's very, very messy uh, in the the best and bloodiest ways. But towards the end of the movie, it becomes uh, like a a siege movie where these two parents are trying to kill their kids who have locked themselves up in the basement. And Selma Blair says, get the Sawzall. And Nick Cage says, we're not going to get through that door. And she says, yes, we are. It's a Sawzall. That means it saws. Oh, we're going to watch it, Tasha. We're ready. No, 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 no. That's the setup. That's the context. That's the tension. (laughs) Okay. Here's where it goes from there. single time it makes me laugh the 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 cereal on the face (laughs) such a good pick Mm. all right i'm gonna try to follow that (laughs) with um a slightly less dark film i feel pretty did many people see i feel pretty the amy schumer comedy came out middle of the year Smattering, okay. I know it made some people angry. They just didn't like the idea of this, where uh, Schumer plays a young woman who gets hit on the head 
and wakes up um, thinking that she looks like a supermodel. And she proceeds to live her life that way. That includes volunteering for a bikini contest on a date um, that turns into... I can understand why this might have offended some, but for me, the way I took it at least, um, it really turns into this um, hilarious spoof of every stupid strip scene we've been subjected to in the movies. Um, Schumer is a really smart comedian. She's always up to more than you think she is, and I think that's what's going on here. So this is an honorable mention for me. Yeah, no, I, I didn't like the movie quite as much as you, but that scene is hilarious. Her, her confidence is just off the charts. It's really good. So my pick here for an honorable mention, if there was a hybrid category for funniest moving moment, this would be the choice. There isn't. Maybe next year we'll get to that. But here's how you know how good the moment is, how good the performance is. We have this still frame reaction. We're going to see it here from the actress, Elsie Fisher. When she learns that she's been voted, this is early in the film, she's been voted most quiet in her eighth grade class. And her reaction says it all. <laughs> <laughs> Because we've seen the opening of the film where she's shot this video of herself and posted on YouTube where she just seems so brimming with confidence and she's so talkative and seemingly outgoing and we soon realize that's a projection of the person that she wants to be. But when they say the category, if you watch the scene, she does kind of stand at attention. She's immediately alert because we do see that hint of fear. Oh God, they might pick me for most quiet. And then that crushing moment where they actually say her name, you see it. That's the moment where just that, that kind of subtle biting of her lip, it, it just devastated me. She's so disappointed in herself in that moment. I, I laugh, but then I do feel terrible for it's her. A that's a really fantastic performance. And, and, and that age, how old was she when she actually shot it? 17, maybe? I thought it was 15. 15. Sam, you're the expert on it. No, 15, grade. that's right, 15. Come on. That, that's a... A lot of people who hit 15 and are working steadily in the movies by then have developed just enough and Bo Burnham told me about this you know just enough in another with, name no though. he did he Come did on. he did I'm telling you do you ever hang out with another regular one. people no no no, no, no 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 take per, a shot everybody no, I, I, I slightly misspoke uh, in an interview I did with Bo Burnham oh, he, I uh, interviewed him yes I did he, he says, I saw a lot of people who, who their credits were basically Disney Channel kids, and they came at him, you know, 110%, and he couldn't say, next, quick enough, right? Uh, this is the opposite. This is somebody who knows exactly what she's doing and has really remarkable, razor-sharp comic t timing, but she, she just always seems absolutely authentically you know, this, this girl. And uh, yeah. it's great. It's really this cool. movie also was re responsible for probably the funniest moment I had in a theater all year, which was when the scene comes around where she ends up in the back of a car with an older boy, there were a, a, a trio of yutzes in my theater who were not into the movie at all. They were giggling amongst themselves. They were teenage boys, and they were like, ah, this is a chick flick. What's going on? And then that scene started, and they all just went rigid, and they're all sitting there whispering to, instead of whispering to each other, whispering to the screen, no, no, dude, don't do it. <laughs> no, leave her alone. Oh, God, what's well, he know? Well, that's encouraging. Oh, it was so sweet. I wanted to pat all over their heads and say, you're on the right track. <laughs>
All right, so our next category here of runners-up comes from superhero movies. And, and this year, we saw a few of them that, that did bring the funny. Tasha bringing the variety here to our little show with this one from a movie I hadn't watched until you brought it up as a contender for this category, Teen Titans Go to the Movies. And it's really worth seeing. Yeah, there's, well, there's one fan out there. I can hear him. Yeah, so there were, there were a record-breaking number of superhero movies in 2018, and most of them had some element of comedy, and many of them had some element of meta, but none of them go more meta than the Teen Titans movie, which is about superhero movies, specifically about Robin and his desire to have a movie made about him. And a producer tells him fairly early in the movie, I would make a movie about you if you were the only superhero there was. So he and his team go back in time and eliminate all other superheroes. <laughs> Pretty casually, like you do. Yeah. And, you know, they save Krypton from blowing up, and they meet the Waynes and save them from being shot in Crime Alley. Mostly by pointing out, it's called Crime Alley! Why are you going there? <laughs> and then they come back to the present, they realize that a world without superheroes is terrible, because they didn't do anything about the supervillains, and they have to go back in time and blow up Krypton and ensure that the Waynes die in Crime Alley. All of this had me on the floor, but the touch that we see here, where they take time to put that iconic pearl necklace on Martha Wayne before they shove her in front of the guns. <laughs> the comic timing on this movie is amazing. Yeah, It's really, really good. All right, my superhero pick comes from Ant-Man and the Wasp, which wasn't my favorite yeah. fans. Fans, okay. Yeah, I think the best parts of that movie um, were the non-sequiturs, just where it kind of stopped and went off in a weird direction. And one of those directions is when Michael Pena, Pena is given truth serum by the bad guys. <laughs> this sends him into uh, this motor mouth digression uh, and I have to give it bonus points for somehow working in a reference to Morrissey. It just it makes no sense, but it's perfect. So that's my honorable mention. Michael Payne is the MVP of everything he's in. I do love that scene. And then we go to my choice, my superhero choice, and we're going to test Tasha's Nanette theory of, of context and payoff here. We'll see if it works for the audience as much as it works for me as we, we take it out of that context. But this is from Deadpool 2, and it is the, the X-Force sequence. So, you know, Deadpool's battling Cable. He needs to form a team. He holds auditions. We meet Bedlam, Shatterstar, Zeitgeist, Vanisher, Domino, played really well by Zazie Beetz in the film, and Peter, who's played by Rob Delaney, the, the, the stand-up and actor. And he's, he's not a mutant. He doesn't really have any special powers. He's a pretty normal guy, but he won, he won Deadpool over at the audition. And we see them as they're about to skydive from a plane and make this big assault. And, you know, the ACDC's pounding, and they're, they're, they're ready to go, except maybe Peter, who does wonder if anybody else is worried about the high winds. Let's watch the scene. I could go like a kid throughout that, that entire sequence in the theater. There's a good joke there at the expense of the audience, at the expense of, of 
fans of this series who I know there was some buildup. Who are the X-Force members going to be and what are they going to be like? And we get to see them assemble a team and just like that, dissemble and actually dismember the team. But the ramping up of awfulness there is just so, so good. So I should we, say, I just want to say one thing. I was talking to Stan Lee the other day and he... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he was Bravo. Too late. He was yeah, he was offended at the violence. That's all. <laughs> okay. In terms of comedy, though, it's not the superheroes who prevailed. It's Game Night that wins. How many people saw Game Night? Yeah. So we all have kind of favorite scenes from this. I think we're actually going to culminate. Josh's choice may be the one for all three of us that that we love the most. Michael, perhaps as well. But let's let's hear about your choices. We see Jesse Plemons and Gary. The neighbor. I think you said on the the year end podcast that just his forehead alone made you laugh in every single scene he was in. But yeah, this is his introduction scene, and this is this is one of the one of the scenes that made me laugh hardest in the theater. That that good laugh where you're choking, and it was just his completely straight face as he confronts our heroes who are about to have a game night and don't want him to know about it because he's such a humorless killjoy, and he he grills them on comfortably about what they have going on this evening and they're like quiet night at home and he points out that they have three bags of Frito-Lay's scoops in their in their bags and and they say oh uh, these were on sale three three for one and and he says with the, the most stunning deadpan of all time how can that possibly be profitable for Frito-Lay <laughs> It's, it's a fantastic character introduction, and you understand everything in it about, you know, how everything about their past together is laid out in that, like, two minutes of conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Plummets is great. Might be kind of the unsung hero of that movie. The MVP, though, maybe Rachel McAdams, of course. And I reference both of these lines and these reactions mm-hmm. on previous shows, but she's just genius in this movie and it may be her two best smaller comedic moments. I say smaller, at least in terms of kind of within these larger sequences. And we're going to get to one here in a moment that, that we just get these great reactions and line readings that happen within a a set piece. And I think we just, we just got to see it. I was going to pull a frame, but it just doesn't do it justice. We have to see and hear Rachel McAdams. Stop. Drop it. Wait, wait, um, you don't have to do this. I, I have kids at home. Not with that ass, you don't. Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. Shit! Yes! Oh, no, he died! Obviously, the oh no, he died is is so great, but I just can't get over that oh, what me really eye roll that she does at that compliment that he gets from him right before he's sucked into the plane engine. (laughs) So if Adam's Deadpool scene maybe could have required a trigger warning of some sort, a little little gory, um, my pick, my winner for uh, funniest scene of the year from game night does involve some gore and um, some close vomiting. They come close to vomiting. If you're sensitive so to that, you might you might want to look away. Be aware. Okay. <gasps> oh, oh, wait. What is that? You hear that? What's that sound? What's that sound? Is that the bullet? <gasps> That's bone. What? That's not right. Okay. Um, what are the racists saying? You can't find the bullet. <sighs> yeah, that's bone. You got the bone. I'm looking at my bone. <gasps> look right here. Max, did you get shot twice? 
the exit wound. Yep, nothing to remove. The bullet has exited the arm. Well, let's just sew that sucker up, huh? Yeah. No, no. Honey, don't, don't look at her. Stop it. <laughs> Rachel McAdams and Jason Bateman have such great chemistry in this movie and, and I love how it's rooted as this married couple in their affection for each other and then kind of slips into that marital spat about how to use your phone right in the middle of it. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful gross out vaudeville routine. I think the film is pretty good and they are really good because I mean especially in a scene like that, where it, the, the comedy really is 50-50 for once, because so often, still, in 2018, we're dealing with, uh, you know, an obvious sort of setup, a foil, a one-dimensional female character up against whoever's getting, or intended to get the most laughs. And this is absolutely, you know, like a good tennis match. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the best of the film is like that. And um, I think the fact that it, was, it turned into a pretty solid success is a reminder how hungry we are for any kind of comedy that you know, has any, any sense of what actually makes uh, comedy work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, okay. I was talking to my good friend, The Bullet, from that scene the other day. <laughs> and, and it said that that was a really hard scene to shoot, but that they pulled it off sure, like professionals. Yeah. I bet. Yeah. <laughs> All right, from the laughter to the tears moving right along, we did hope to have, we did plan to have Angelica Jade Bastien from Vulture here for this section of the show and she was going to help us with scenes of the year unfortunately she can't join us tonight she is really disappointed we hope to have her on of course for future episodes and hopefully future live shows we are still going to get to one or two of her great picks as we share a couple honorable mentions and you know i'm looking at the time and i'm worried about what we may cut here josh but we can't cut we cannot cut this transition into thinking about the most moving, most emotional moments of the year. And we have a, a pair of them here that are kind of focused on moments of, of people being comforted and maybe even in some ways uh, being helped to heal. And I'm going to give another trigger warning because this is the scene that reduced our family room to sobs. It's from Won't You Be My Neighbor. Oh, boy. He told Jeff before they started that they would have a chat and then sing a song together. I think he said we might sing a song, yeah, I remember, because yeah. I mean, I was sort of surprised. What, he's going to start singing a song? You know, this is totally not even what song. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. But it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your fancy chair, that's just beside you, but it's you I like, every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new. I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like, it's you yourself, it's you, it's you. And it is you I like, Jeff. Thanks. And 
and there must be times when you do feel blue. Uh-huh. I'm not feeling blue right now, though. Me neither. <laughs> I'm so glad that you came today. Thanks. So, yeah, that's, um, it's obviously pulled from the show itself, a 1981 clip with five-year-old uh, Jeff Erlinger who suffers from nerve damage. And I want to be clear, it's, it's not just the song, which is moving, that I think is crucial about that scene. It's the conversation afterwards um, where Fred Rogers makes time to acknowledge that um, this kid feels blue. And I think that was the key to Rogers is, you know, he, he emboldened kids by first allowing them to feel sad or feel scared and then, and then gain kind of confidence from there. So that's what really got me about that scene. Yeah. We go to my picks and I say picks because it's my only cheat. I promise. It's my only cheat, Josh. But, and this guy just whispered to me he's yeah. worried about time. But it, it was the year of the horse. And I'm not even talking about sorry to bother you here. I'm just going to talk about the writer. And this is a movie that, of course, was on many of our top tens. Three of our top tens would have been all four if Josh hadn't put it at number 11. Number 11. Thanks, Josh. Um, would have been nice. But these are the moments that I'm choosing here from the endings of two films that feature horses prominently. And we see here, this is uh, Brady Jandro, the main character, meeting with Lane, who is his friend. The, they are both real-life rodeo riders. They both, in real life, suffered injuries. And Lane suffering from a more serious uh, injury and actually has brain damage and is in a care facility. And this is a moment here at the end where Brady is actually helping him kind of recreate the feeling of riding a horse. And from there... We go to Andrew Hayes' wonderful film, Lean on Pete. Charlie Plummer, as a 15-year-old boy named Charlie, who loses his father, and uh, before that, actually, he starts working, caring for a horse, an aging horse named Lean on Pete. And this, this film does ultimately traverse a whole lot of darkness and, and actions that he has to forgive himself for, has to forgive others for, all leading up to this moment we do see here where he can admit the, the nightmares he's having and find a little bit of solace there in that scene. We have a, a couple more honorable mentions that are from uh, movies that deal uh, prominently with family. Yeah, A Wrinkle in Time was a movie that, you know, I, I think had its issues, but acting wasn't one of them. And uh, Storm Reed and Chris Pine, who, let us not forget, is the number one movie, Chris. We've, we've, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you. That, Tasha. Tasha, come on. We don't have time. <laughs> Chris Pine and Storm Reed. Hemsworth. <laughs> are so good in this in the moments that they get together, including this moment of reunion. And my pick is from the movie Shoplifters, Hirokazu Koreeda's film about a makeshift family trying to make ends meet. A couple of them do have jobs, but they mostly get by on grifting. And one night they come home and they see this adorable little girl who's clearly abused and clearly neglected. And she's freezing out in the cold, kind of just right outside her apartment. Her parents can't be found anywhere. And they... They try to help her, and they, they bring her in for the night, and they just don't really return her. And for a, a long time, anyway, the parents don't seem to be looking for her. And we're seeing a moment here that, that is really touching, where the, the, the mom there in the scene and the girl kind of notice they have similar scars from their past abuse. But the one that really is, is the most heartbreaking for me is where uh, she's sitting with the girl, and they're in front of a fire, and she's explaining to her what love really feels like. And, and what she says to her is, if they say they do it because they love you, if they hurt you, and they say they do it because they love you, that's a lie. If they really loved you, this is what you do. And in the moment, she just squeezes her so 
tightly and rock side to side with her. And then it does culminate with the little girl reaching up and touching her face. And it's overwhelmingly emotional. At least it was for me. So we get to our winners here and our top choices for Moving Moment. And this is a movie that did get some attention on the Top 10 show. Josh, a big fan. I think Michael, all three bigger fans than me. Michael, I think it was in your Top 10, and that's the movie Private Life. This was Angelica's choice for the most moving moment of the year. At first, when she suggested it, I thought, I remember that scene being so kind of funny. And we're going to see. It is pretty funny, but there is a lot of sadness at the core of it as well. So this is an argument from the end of the film. Uh, Catherine Hahn, Paul Giamatti, anything else you need to set up? Yeah, a couple in their 40s who have, um, you know, really been They've been doing everything they can to get pregnant and are sort of at a moment of crisis here about that. Why are you so fixated on this? I'm not. I am simply pointing out that since we have been so obsessed with this project, we've had sex maybe one time in 11 months, and you had to get trashed on a bottle of rosé before you would even consider it. I mean, Jesus, uh, uh, Dr. Dordick is more intimate with your vagina than oh, I am. Oh, my God. Do you want sex right now? Is that it? Because we just had a failed IVF, and I don't know about you, but that makes me feel pretty shitty and dead and despondent and doesn't put me in a particularly erotic frame of mind. But if you're dead set on it, you know, sure we can manage something. Just can't guarantee it's gonna be a hell of a lot of fun. Oh look, batteries still work, so lucky day. Yeah, there's I mean, you can see it all over their faces. There's a real sense of despair in that scene. That's a good the whole the whole film is good. It didn't quite make my top ten, but it was my top twenty, I think. And and that it's it's wonderful when you have actors who are known for comedy but who are just as skilled as as anybody and at a really really dark and truthful kind of um, tr- uh, drama. And the whole thing, I talked about the you know, two notes at once with Stars Born, the whole, this whole Tamara Jenkins uh, triumph really is three notes at once, I think. Yeah. It's gonna be yeah. the least funny vibrator I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> <laughs> There's spikes of humor in that scene though, which is like you're saying, Michael, it, it really, it does work on all those levels. So my pick for um, most moving moment of the year comes from a Spike Lee film, and I think we're all familiar with some pretty great Spike Lee speech scenes. Um, This one from Black Klansman is one of his best. It is time for you to stop running away from being black. You're college students, right? Right on. You should think. It is time for you to understand that you, as the growing intellectuals of this country that you must define beauty for black people. Now that's black power. Ask you something, is beauty defined as someone with a narrow nose? Thin lips? White skin? Mm -mm. Hell no. Hell no. Because you ain't got none of that. Our lips are thick, our nose is broad, our hair is nappy, we are black and we are beautiful. So that's, um, you know, Corey Hawkins there as Kwame Ture, and he's stirring enough, the performance. But then Lee and uh, cinematographer Chase Irwin, they could have cut away to close-ups of the crowd to emphasize his point. They do that, but then they come up with this other extra creative touch of these stylized 
portraits, and, and that just uh, makes it all the more stunning and deeply moving. I'm going to go with a scene from one of the great documentaries of the year, my number two film of the year, Minding the Gap. And this is a film that is very much about child abuse and domestic violence and the echoes of that trauma. And we're going to see in this scene, it's kind of bookended with a, a moment with the character Kier, who at first is looking for his father's headstone. I believe it's on Father's Day. And we also see Zach, one of the main characters, and Bing Lu, who's the filmmaker here, interviewing his mother about the abuse he suffered and she suffered as well at uh, the hands of his stepfather. Let's go ahead and watch the scene. I don't want my son. I just don't want him to grow up. You know, like, fucked up, like me, you know? <laughs> I can't let myself think that the reason I have to struggle so hard is because I fucking suck. I can't, you know, that's what the drinking is about. That's, that's what it's all about. I just want to hide. I just want to run away. I wish that I could do over. I cannot believe he's that bad. It's such a crushing, a hopeless feeling. It just sucks knowing that you're your own enemy. And every decision you ever made has culminated in how shitty your life is now. And there's no escaping it. I don't know. If I, I try to help you. If you want to fail to do anything, you think you can help you heal, that's fine. You cannot change past. Well, the reason why I wanted to make this film was maybe I'm maybe you're right maybe I'm, I need to just move on and not dwell on the past. I wish you could. Okay, make you feel better. That's fine. I cut. Oh my god. Fucking yes. <laughs> I fucking found it. <sighs> I just love the combination of catharsis and confession there in that scene. Bing, maybe with his mother saying that, can move on a little bit from this. Hopefully she can too. We have Zach acknowledging his failures, which he has a lot to, to overcome, mostly of his own doing. We'll see whether or not that happens, but maybe, at least in acknowledging it, he's, he's on the right path. And then Kier finding his dad's headstone there at the end, I think, is his own symbolic uh, moment of healing. So maybe, I think, a good note to end on from a great film. Yeah, that's a really good scene. And it's, it, it works because there's nothing else in the film like it. it, it the You're whole right. film builds to this sort of, it's all these separate streams. And then you have this one sort of, you know, symphonic sort of cathartic boom. And, and that, that if you haven't seen it and that's your first experience with Mining the Gap, it's, that's, that's almost the exception to the rule and that's why the film is so good. Mm -hmm. And it's such a strange sequence because it's three moments that, that stand on their own as these unique different kinds of catharsis for different people. And then it's cut together in a way that makes it a movie moment, that mm -hmm. makes it, it build over time in a very dramatic way. And it, it feels to me like none of those scenes quite get room to breathe properly, but it also feels like you don't get room to breathe. And it, it becomes such a forceful moment because it's all hitting you at once. And with that, we're going to take a break, everybody. We're going to come back, though. Don't stray too far. Scenes of the year just ahead.
Thank you. Stay with us. The Film Spotting 2018 Rap Party, live from the Logan Center for the Arts in Chicago, continues in a moment. Stay with us. I was 18, the thing I wanted more than anything was to make a movie. I had the idea that you found freedom by building worlds inside your head. That you had to go backwards in order to go forwards. But I never imagined it would end this way. Whenever you're ready. Now. Take one. I'm making this film because I saw myself in your story. I always felt like I didn't fit in with my family. My parents ran this very controlling house. I ran away a lot. Skateboarding is more of a family than my family. How did you get disciplined? I mean, well, they call it child abuse now, but... Life might be moving too fast. We have to fully grow up and it's gonna suck. When you're a kid, you just do, you just act. And then somewhere along the line, everyone loses that. No more riding, no more rodeos. If you don't stop, your seizures are gonna get worse. Welcome back to Film Spotting Live. The Golden Brick finalists there, the writer, Minding the Gap, you've heard a little bit about both of those films, and Sandy Tan's Shirkers rounding out. Our three finalists, I think we started with maybe 12 nominees total, and the Golden Brick is our annual award that goes to what we call the overlooked film of the year. We have some other criteria as well. Yeah, usually we look for newer emerging filmmakers. Uh, people have had maybe two films under their belt around there, and then also Films that showed a distinct vision. We're really doing something unique that uh, we haven't seen before um, or, or haven't uh, seen done in this particular way. So we're going to announce the winner here in a second. And I want to point out it's the closest decision ever. The closest decision in brick history. It actually ended up being the listener vote. You guys ultimately decided the winner of the golden brick, the poll question over there at filmspotting.net. And almost 1,500 votes in that poll, and it ended up being only 70 votes that separated the winner from the runner-up. And those two movies were The Writer and The Winner, Minding the Gap, Bing Liu, getting the 2018 Golden Brick. And we are very lucky to have a message from Bing Liu accepting his award. Hello, this is Bing Liu. Greetings from Chicago, from my bedroom, where I spent some years making Minding the Gap. 
um, with the help of these post-it notes and uh, this bed where I slept and this couch where I also slept. Uh, also with the help of Kartempquin and Diane Kwan and Josh Altman and a wonderful team and ITVS and POV who came on board and funded the film and really believed in me and Hulu who helped distribute the film. Um, thank you so much, Film Spotting Community. Uh, the film has gotten so many more eyes on it because of you guys. Um, I remember being in Rockford many years ago, sitting on a couch, drinking beer with my buddies, watching the film Brick, and being just blown away by it. So I feel very, very honored to be in a long line of um, uh, amazing independent cinema. So um, maybe I'll see you guys in Chicago sometime soon. Enjoy the rest of your night. and. Ciao. It's here for Big Lou and Minding the Gap. So great to get such a thoughtful message from Bing after seeing the movie. Not a surprise at all that we would get that. The listener part of this has always been so huge, though, going back to the very first brick that we gave out to Duncan Jones' film Moon, starring Sam Rockwell. And we got a message from Alex Anir that really kind of sums it up. A longtime listener, he says, Thank you, Film Spotting and Larson on Film, for this great annual tradition. Once again, I found a wonderful film, Minding the Gap, a sensitive, intimate, and cathartic film that I doubt I'd have found without your praise for it. And so that's what we hope to identify and shine a light on are these films that otherwise might kind of go under the radar if we didn't uh, talk about them on the show and constantly praise them. So really just seemed perfect that Minding the Gap was this year's Golden Brick winner, the second documentary, actually, that's won the award. Yeah, we always have documentaries in the mix, so I was sort of surprised to learn that this is just the second winner. The other winner, Joshua Oppenheimer's The Act of Killing from 2013. And you can find out more information about our whole Golden Brick Award at filmspotting.net slash bricks. And this means we got to start looking out for the 2019 yeah. Golden Brick. Yeah, right the now. race starts now, but Bing definitely joins some great company. You can see all those lists, as Josh said, all the winners, the past winners, including Yorgos Lanthimos, Sean Baker, Andrea Arnold, Jeremy Sonier, over at filmspotting.net slash bricks. And now it is time for our scenes of the year. And we, we do have some honorable mentions, as we do here on the show, and we're going to go through a couple of them here pretty quickly, and I'm, I'm glad that this film got a little more love. Uh, it came up. It was definitely... No, it was not in your top ten, was it? It didn't make my it top missed, ten. I don't know if it, it came up in the top ten show, but I know a lot of people are really in love with Paddington, too. And so I, I considered the pop-up book sequence from Paddington, too, as a scene of the year. It's just emblematic of what's so special about these films. In order to tell the story of Paddington 2, they, they didn't have to do this pop-up sequence where we are suddenly emerged in the book itself and take a tour of London. Um, but it's just for the creative joy of it, they did it. And that's how those movies feel. Yeah, I went with another scene from Black Klansman, actually. And Josh, you picked a great one with the sequence we saw a little bit earlier. But for me, yeah, this one is just... So heavy, so powerful. It's the, the cross-cutting between a sequence of that black student union, Harry Belafonte playing, I believe, a fictional character there who made for the movie, but uh, delivering a talk, talking about a real event, a man named Jesse Washington in Waco, Texas, um, uh, who was lynched. And, and you see these horrific pictures and, and the retelling of this story as he's talking to the members of the Black Student Union. And, he, and Spike, the provocateur that he is, is cross-cutting that with this KKK induction ceremony. And he's he, stealing from the movie they ultimately end up watching, The Birth of a Nation, known uh, for its its kind of introduction uh, of cross-cutting and, and how famously it used it. And uh, 
he is uh, appropriating it for his own purposes here in this scene. And, and again, that provocation of of ending a, a scene with a, a moment of black power and uh, fists going in the air and saying that at the same time that we are cutting to a moment of people proclaiming white power and uh, it's, it's Spike being Spike. He's really, I think, at his best, uh, certainly among his best with Black Klansmen. I also wanted to single out another moment from my favorite film of the year, as I said, If Beale Street Could Talk, from Barry Jenkins. I, I've talked about it a little bit on the show, but this family showdown that happens pretty early in the film when uh, we already saw Tish and Fani in, uh, in Michael's pick for Music Moment, and uh, they're, they're pregnant, they're going to have a baby, and the, Fani's mother is not, is not too happy about that. And this sequence plays out over the course of at least 10 minutes, and the two families get together, uh, mom, dad, couple sisters in the scene, and uh, it, it, just, it was one of my favorite moments of the year. It, it's so theatrical. I think you could say that. It feels a little bit like a stage play, eight characters kind of trapped in a room. But, of course, it's, it's not cinematic, only if you completely overlook everything else about the mise-en-scene, the, the production design, the lighting, the costumes, and, of course, the acting is just really wonderful in the scene. That's Tayana Paris there in this frame. Everything about it, it just the, the characters are so charged the scene is so charged with resentment and anger and, and fear and disappointment and uh, the reckoning with that and all their internal conflicts really come to the fore. For my last honorable mention, I want to return to Annihilation. Adam had a pick from Annihilation earlier. I still don't have any idea what's going on in this scene <laughs> from Annihilation, but it's so disturbing and bewildering and beautiful that it really doesn't matter. So I, I considered it as a scene of the year. Okay, I do think we have some time for a couple audience picks here. We're going to get to our video choices. Michael and Tasha are going to share their number one scene of the year. But we did get some emails from those of you out there in the crowd and picked a few of them to share here. Adam Wells, are you here, Adam? All right, <laughs> up front. Thank you for submitting this. My favorite movie moment caught me by surprise because it's not really a big showcase moment. It's from If Beale Street Could Talk. It comes right after Tish and Fani are able to rent an apartment. The camera just observes them walking down the street when Fani lets out the most exuberant scream to the heavens because this couple will finally be able to start life on their own. For one brief moment, these two people who love each other wholly were allowed to share that feeling with the world. Yeah, so good, that scene in the village. Greg from New Lenox. I know you're right up there up front. He says, scanning the list of movies I've seen this year, the one where a scene or moment jumps out is the initial break-in scene in Game Night, where Kyle Chandler is just given the instructions of the game to his guests and then goes into a ridiculously long and comical fight sequence that turns out to be the real deal. Absolutely hysterical, and it was at that moment that I realized that this movie really had a spark of life to it. And Rich Yates, I know you're here, Rich. We talked beforehand. Where are you sitting? All right. Rich came from a long way. I think yeah. we need to acknowledge all of our listeners who came from, you know, not just sort of Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin. Rich coming from Dallas, right? How about that? Dallas, Others Texas. from Massachusetts. Yeah, Lisa's out there with her husband from Ayer, Massachusetts. Right, right there, there in the front. Yeah, and Rich, we got to hang out at the Austin meetup. So, yeah, thanks for making the trip. Uh, you chose... The beach scene from Roma, absolutely one I considered as well, or the bridge scene from Game Night. I love all the Game Night love. Also heard from Mike Decimos. Not sure if I'm getting that right. You can correct me live, Mike. If Are you're you here? here. All right. Okay. Mike. How'd I do with the name? Oh. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a state of shock. Yeah, he we never might have hears to pause that. here. 
Mike's pick was the confrontation between Sam Elliott's Bobby and Bradley Cooper's Jack in A Star is Born that leads to Bobby quitting the team. He recognizes simultaneously that Allie is his brother's savior, but won't be so for long if Jack continues to self-destruct. I love that Mike submitted this because it gives me a chance to mention that amazing scene between Sam Elliott and Bradley Cooper that would have definitely been in the mix for a most moving moment of the year if, like, years pass, I did seven honorable mentions. But I held back this the year. The truck backing out of the yeah, driveway. Yeah, the truck backing yeah. out there where uh, Bradley Cooper's character admits that it was really kind of him he was imitating all along. Sam Elliott just amazing there in that scene. And the aforementioned Lisa Nelson from Air, Massachusetts says... She's got a favorite musical moment or two. We're going to give another a little nod here to Bohemian Rhapsody. She said, you have to resist picking something from A Star is Born. We failed, Lisa. We're sorry. <laughs> We're sorry. But she says, there's so many reasons why Bohemian Rhapsody shouldn't work, and yet it does. And confess, film snob that I am, I get excited just thinking of the numerous great musical scenes, the creation of We Will Rock You, transitioning from the band and rehearsal to a concert crowd dutifully keeping the beat, then transitioning back to the rehearsal as if we are in the band's imagination of what the song will become. And then the one-two punch of the ending, Bohemian Rhapsody and Radio Gaga at the Live Aid show. For at least a little while, we feel like we are transported back to 1985 and that crowd at Wembley. How about Drew Brennan? Drew, you're here, where Drew. are you? All, All right. right. Hey, Drew. <laughs> In the Dawn Wall, the Dawn Wall, I'm familiar with this one. When Tommy Caldwell waits seven days for Kevin Jorgensen to finish pitch 15 so they can go on and finish the climb together. The joint emotion they both show and let out was an amazing moment. My heart jumped for the both of them. Yeah, we had Free Solo this year. There's another movie about free climbers that uh, I was not familiar with either, but it's out there, I know, on iTunes. Finally, real quick, Michael Brody wrote in. Are you here? Michael. We had we had to get in a mention of blind spotting. Now, Michael, are you aware that, you know, we have a segment on the show called blind spotting and there's the overlap. You actually wrote in the final rap scene to the cop from film spotting. So you had film spotting on the brain, but I knew what you meant. And and I wanted to get in a mention of that film because so many people wrote in and said, I can't believe you guys haven't talked about this film. I finally did. After we got through all the tough 10 stuff, sadly, that's when I finally got a chance uh, to watch that film. Very good. You guys were all right to recommend <laughs> blind spotting there and with that i think we are ready to get into our scenes of the year and we are going to continue with the annihilation love and this actually is a scene yeah this is a scene that angelica picked for her scene of the year and she's not here but we can hear her great words she wrote a really smart and eloquent review of this film. And she says this about this scene, which is the bear scene. She says, still strapped to chairs and unable to defend themselves, the women watch as a deformed bear-like creature enters the home, its face mostly skeletal, dripping with blood. It moves between the chairs, sniffing at the air. When it opens its maw to bellow, it isn't an animal's voice it speaks with, but Cass's. From its unhinged, uneven jaws comes her voice during the final moments of her life, terrified, crying for help, aware of certain death. Let's see it. More from Angelica. It's the most amazingly constructed, terrifying scene I've watched in the last few years. A triumphant marriage of invention, stellar sound design, careful acting, and directing. It highlights the way sorrow can ripple, infecting everything in its radius, its effects seen long after the initial traumas it breeds. 
harrowing stuff, Michael. Not so harrowing as we get to your pick. No, I had a lot. There's a lot of a lot of things that really stick out when you look over an entire year. Like even if it's a big hit like um, Black Panther, I think I think the death of um, uh, the Michael um, B. Jordan character. That's like just to see that kind of human feeling in a superhero film, um, kind of stunning. When I think of the first and first slash last date. Uh, that Melissa McCarthy's uh, Lee Israel has in Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is, I love that film. Um, you know, that scene really stood out. And yet nothing can compete for me than an actor who can run funny. <laughs> so Let's we're going to see, see a little bit from The Death of Stalin. I read my favorite unsung character actor of the moment, Simon Russell Beale, who I would give every award to if I ran the world or I'm the zoo you. or something. Uh, he plays Beria, uh, who's uh, Stalin's secret service head, who's in this power struggle, this death vice kind of power struggle with uh, uh, Khrushchev, played by... Um, uh, Steve Buscemi, and it's it's, it's just a literal, you know, the, who's going to get to run this country now that Stalin is gone? Well, we have to comfort Svetlana, Stalin's daughter, and it's a, and it turns into a literal foot race on who's going to get to her first. So. Oh, Christian, I said my life making people talk. I can't shut that gabbling idiot up. We need to assert our authority, increase security in Moscow. We should get Stalin's children here. Vasily will be lying face down in a ditch full of vodka, but Svetlana... People love her. I'm gonna get her in. Svetlana is here! I'm here! I'm over here! Svetlana! Svetlana! Shit, the race has started. All right, we need to start putting together a plan. We need change. Put a halt to the arrests, prison releases, maybe even reform the church. How can you run and plot at the same time? Hello! Svetlana! They're trying to cut you off. Where? It's obvious. Svetlana! Svetlana! <laughs> oh, my darling. Where is he? Oh. Where's my father? Oh, my dear. I would like... Oh, so, so sorry. I would like to see him. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, of course. So yes, we'll take Where him. is he? Yes. We'll take you inside. Oh, He's in perfect. there straight away. Oh. God almighty, look at that. Look at that herb so garden. Sorry. Does nobody tend it anymore? Do people oh. no longer eat herbs anymore? Do they have weeds? I mean, it, it's a very self-effacing pick for best scene of the year. I, I, uh, <laughs> but I, there's a, if you turn the sound off, it looks like it's absolutely it's just sort of like docudrama about Stalin's, you know, succession afterwards. And I, Simon Ruffle Beale, I just, ever since the death of Jerry Lewis, I've been just dying for someone who can run funny. And uh, <laughs> anybody who can run like that, like a, it's like a Sherman tank with, a, with little arms outstretched, you know, running. I, I, if you've ever seen that actor and other things, the Deep Blue Sea, uh, see him on stage, it just... Get a, you know, just savor this guy. We'll, we'll have him for 20, 30 more years, and then he'll be gone. But I, I love this actor, and I, this comedy, I love. <laughs> That's it. Great I, scene. Just, just to kind of, just to kind of, you know, just remind people that I like a good laugh. Yeah. yeah. They're kind of like the Seven Stooges in that scene. They a little bit, yeah. Piling up on top of each other. <laughs> All right, so the scene that I'm going with for uh, my favorite scene of the year, I thought about for the funniest scene of the year, I thought about for the most moving scene of the year, and then I realized, well, if it's in contention for those two, then it should probably just qualify for scene of the year, and it comes from Isle of Dogs. Don't ask me to fetch that stick. <laughs> fetch it. Fetch it! I'm telling you, I don't fetch. Fetch it? 
I'm not doing this because you commanded me to. I'm doing it because I feel sorry for you. Good boy. Love that movie. So I've talked about why, you know, Isle of Dogs is timely. I mean, again, this week we've got more wall nonsense going on. But this scene, I think, shows why it's timeless. Uh, you really have this impeccably crafted um, and clever meditation on the nature of free will going on uh, in this stop motion um, comedy. So if somehow you've missed Isle of Dogs, came out earlier in the year, got swept up in a little early controversy, uh, make time to go back and see it. It's a treasure. That brings us to my pick, which comes from a movie that helped start the show, and that is Alfonso Cuaron's Roma. And this is the scene where we see Cleo, the main character, a domestic worker. She's being taken by the grandmother of the family who employs her to go buy a crib. She's pregnant, and as you will see, there's a lot more going on than in the scene than just a little shopping. Mire cómo ve esta. ¿Cómo es? Está bien. ¿Te gusta Cleo? Está bonita. ¿En cuánto me la va a dejar? No, pero con descuento de cliente antiguo. Ay, déjenme ir a preguntar a la patrona, ahorita vengo. Aquí compramos el mueble para el cuarto de Toño y Paco, que ahora está en el desorden de Pepe. just kind of stunning filmmaking some using those longer takes but this smaller private scene that's taking place against the backdrop of this huge public turmoil and i think for me it's it's the moment of the year because it is such stunning filmmaking but uh, it captures the way i most felt about 2018 and maybe a lot of people in the room felt about 2018 where you just could not avoid that collision of the personal and the political. And I don't know if anyone's had a chance to watch it, but our friend of the show, Mikado Murphy, who does web and video stuff for the New York Times, he did an anatomy of a scene with Coron on this. And it was, uh, it was fascinating because I remember these are the stupid things sometimes we write in our notebooks when we watch films. You, you see that scene where the, he, he shows the clocks and kind of dwells on them for a second. I'm writing like, what's, what's the meaning of the clocks? I'm sure it had to seem like upper middle class people in, in Mexico City in 1971 were all into clocks. I didn't know what it was. And he explains actually that he had the clocks there and he had them set. If you look, they're all set at the same time. And it signifies the time just a few minutes before that actual student protest that happened in 1971 took place in the afternoon. So it's one of those kind of Quran touches in terms of the attention to detail. No one watching that. Well, actually, I say no one. Most of us watching that wouldn't be aware. But obviously, a lot of people who were living in Mexico City and lived through that in that time might be aware of, of that detail of the clock. But again, I just think it speaks to his overall attention to that and the, uh, the authenticity that helps make Roma so special. Special. And we felt that we couldn't end a discussion of the best scenes of the year of 2018 without, without going back to superheroes and Tasha's choice for scene of the year. I will specify that when I got the email, it said scene of the year. I'm seeing a lot of scene of the year here, not yeah. best scene of the year. Oh. So I'm not going to say 
that this sequence is more powerful than the physical therapy scene in, in The Rider or the rap scene in Sorry to Bother You, which I would never subject an unsuspecting audience to. No, and out I of context. It. We almost included it. <laughs> so, so many scenes that I consider maybe better in terms of emotional impact or filmmaking. But to me, the sequence from a superhero film, which is a, a payoff for literally 10 years of Marvel Cinematic Universe films and approximately 356,000 movies that have been made in that sequence. We're so used to superhero films being about catharsis, about simplifying all of the problems we face in the world to a point where they can be solved by punching a bad guy in the face really hard. And this was the year that we finally ran up against a problem that not only could the superheroes not face, they couldn't necessarily survive. And just in terms of cultural impact and the amount of discussion and obsession that went on over this, uh, for me it was the scene of the year because I just can't get it out of my head. Yeah, and if somehow you missed it, spoilers, we're going to watch it. (laughs) Steady, Quill. Tony. There was no other way. Did it start? I don't feel so good. You're all right. I don't. I don't know what's happening. I don't. I don't want to go. I don't want to go, sir. Please, please, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Applause for Thanos, anyone? No? 50% of you should applaud for Thanos. I can't believe there's not going to be a sequel. I just can't believe it. (laughs) We're done with superhero films forever. That was the last one. Okay. Those are our scenes of the year. How did we do? Not bad? Okay, so... We called an audible here live. We have 10 minutes left. We have a hard out at 10 o'clock. And we were going to start this segment, part two of the show, with Massacre Theater. Like last time we were here, we wanted to do a live Massacre Theater. And unfortunately, it was a 45-minute scene. It it pretty much was. (laughs) Came from the imagination of Sam Van Halgren. I'm not going to give it away. I will tell you that last night we were slacking with each other as I was stressing out about this show and I told him this is the worst idea we've ever had. And over time, I came to really actually love the idea of just making fools of ourselves on stage. Maybe next year. Maybe next year. So I want to save it because I think we might get to it uh, on a future live episode. But we do have a little bit of time left and and we think this could be fun to go ahead and end the show with this. We're going to announce the winner of Massacre Theater and play the scene that we massacred on our last episode, which, I don't know, came from early December, I think, at this point. Time to go ahead and announce that winner. Of course, everyone knows Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene, you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. And Josh, do you want to you do the honors of, of setting up what we're about to watch that, that also came from the imagination of Sam Van Holgren? Yeah, I mean, this is something we've kind of batted about. Uh, it might be fun to do with Massacre Theater, and just there's always a million things to do with the show. So we have not gotten around to it until Sam worked uh, a little magic. You'll see what I mean. We have to shut it down. Please tell me how. Flash Thompson. 
brilliant but lazy. Look at what's happening. You must destroy it. I can't destroy it. <laughs> I won't. One spoke to me about intelligence. That was a gift to be used for the good of mankind. A privilege. These things have turned into something you're not. Don't listen to them. It was my dream. Sometimes, to do what's right, we have to be steady and give up the thing we want the most. Even our dreams. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Josh, once again, oh, there we go. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank you. That was, uh, that was more scarring than the Annihilation Bear. I don't yeah. know. Just acting me under the table once again, Josh Larson. Very, uh, very good stuff. That was me as Tobey Maguire and uh, Adam as Alfred Molina in Spider-Man 2, written by Alvin Sargent, directed by Sam Raimi. Um, yeah, we massacred that a couple of weeks ago now when we were reviewing, or you reviewed on yeah. that show, Adam, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Which you hadn't seen and you didn't see before our top 10, but now you've caught up with it and you're a big fan. Yeah, I think it's in my top 20, actually. Yeah. So Josh Glover in West Fargo, North Dakota, sent in some connections. Tobey Maguire, who played the role that Josh overchokedly massacred, was also in The Great Gatsby, which was the last episode's Massacre Theater. Sam changed the name of Peter Parker to Flash Thompson, who was played in 2002 Spider-Man by Joe Manganiello. He went on to play Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke in Justice League, which starred Ben Affleck as Batman, who briefly shows up in Suicide Squad. And that's right, everything comes back to Suicide Squad. <laughs> If you didn't know that, now you know. And finally, Alfred Molina played Satipo in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and it might be a bit of a stretch, but isn't the Ark of the Covenant really just a big golden brick? <laughs> Why not? So, Josh, reach into what is definitely a hat sitting in front of you, an actual <laughs> film-spotting yes. hat that everyone here in the crowd can see, mm -hmm. and reach out and, and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Andrew Howell. He's from Lake Oswego, Oregon. Congratulations to Andrew Howell in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Yeah, round of applause for Andrew. And we're actually going to end on time. This it's is a crazy, miracle. But we want to give you guys a round of applause. Thank you for being such a great crowd here tonight. Yeah, yeah. And of course, a huge round of applause to Tasha Robinson, Michael Phillips. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. A thank you as well to Dave Dennis, who's our recording engineer. And I want to say thanks to Dave Brott in the front row. Came from Cincinnati, fellow Grinelli, and bought me a beer before the show. So he gets my biggest thanks. From WBEZ, the amazing events team that made this whole thing happen. As you can tell, it's quite a production. How about a round of applause for Tyler Green, Simon Tran, Marquita Wiggins, and Amin Sinji. Great, great work. Thank you, guys. And we especially want to give thanks. This is an amazing venue. This screen does most of the work tonight, we'll admit. So we want to thank the Logan Center team as well. Grayson, Aaron, Frank, and Summer. Thank you all.
Thanks again, everyone, for coming out for Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kepinar. Thanks for watching us. Thanks for listening. Our sincere thanks to everyone who came out for our 2018 rap party. Again, if you're listening on the radio, there's about an hour more to the live show that we couldn't fit into our hour slot here on your dial. You can hear the rest of it at filmspotting.net or find the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That includes iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can send comments about this or any episode to feedback at filmspotting.net. Adam and I are also on Facebook and Twitter. Adam's at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And while you're there, vote in the current Filmspotting poll. What is your most anticipated original non-sequel film of 2019? We're going to talk about all that and more next week when we share our 2019 movie preview. Yep. We're going to do this all over again. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hallgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board and Andy Mitchell, our production assistant. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More info is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.